when we begin to look at, at, at this book of Acts and, and, we, and we begin to open it up, one of the first things that we must remember is that this is like a, a, a history book of, uh, of the beginning of the church. And so when we begin to open this up, the church had to start somewhere. It, 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 and so you see leadership first from, from Jesus, but, but he's stepping aside. And then, then you see, see other leaders step up within that church. And, and we as people find comfort in good leadership. We, we, we all like following someone or something. Whether you're at the heights of leadership in, in, in an organization or, or within a church, uh, whether you're an elder or a deacon or, or, or a preacher, we, we all like following someone or something as a guide. We find comfort in these things. When we begin to look at this passage, at the very beginning of it, we see uh, Luke talking about the ascension of, of, of Christ. And, and, and I don't want to gloss over, over this because it's, it's so pivotal to, to where our hope is in Jesus. Our, our belief about the ascension is one of the, one of the gr- greatest theological points of, of what our, our belief is, where our hope is not for today in Jesus, but for tomorrow, for his returning. Without the resurrection and ascension, our hope is simply small and far more insignificant than what we could ever imagine. The, the ascension is so important that it gives us hope, like I said, for tomorrow's kingdom, not for today's. During those three days in the grave and, and the 40 days before his ascension, Jesus was doing a lot of teaching uh, of the disciples, of the coming kingdom, of preparing them for, for what was to come. This is, why, this is one reason why Jesus didn't stay very long away from, from the disciples, and, and we see those 120 that are, that are numbered with them. Because they would have scattered under the circumstances of what happened after the crucifixion. You, you see that they scattered after the cru- during the crucifixion anyway. But Jesus comes back to them after his resurrection and, and gathers them back to teach. The, the word disciple by itself implies that there's leadership going on above that. When we're called the disciple of Jesus, he's the leader of whatever our train of thought is going to be. This is why we see Jesus as the first leader of the church, and, but then we see that leadership passed off again and again in, in Acts. Our text this morning uh, is Acts 6, uh, sorry, Acts 1, 6 through 26. Uh, I'd, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going we're gonna to only read 6 through 11 this morning, and then I'll ask a blessing on our time. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? To Israel, sorry. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria 
and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were look, as they were looking on, he was lifted up on a cloud out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you to, into heaven will come in the, very, in, the, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven today. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I ask for a blessing on our time together. I, I, Lord, I, I, I pray that uh, this message would not impact us simply in the uh, time that we're here, Lord, but, but would impact our lives as witnesses for you, for you. Lord, that we would live in the power that, that you've given us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, you hold all these things together, and Lord, we know that you hold even our faith. Lord, I pray that we would not forget that and, and, and live in light of that, knowing that we live in that power. Father, again, I pray that you would speak through me and through the words that I've written. Lord, that, uh, that you would be glorified through, this, through our time together. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, my first point is that we all need to follow instruction. Jesus gives, we'll see three points from Jesus here first, that Jesus gave orders. I want to go back to last week's sermon. I don't know if Phil touched on this, but in last week's passage, in verse 4, Jesus gave the disciples orders. He says in verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So Jesus is giving you an order here. He's not being heavy-handed, and he's not, he's not being disrespectful to them. What, what he's doing is, is, is he's laying out a, a framework of, of what he wants to see out of them. Uh, similar to, to the way an officer in, in the military would give an order, the officer expects that that order be carried out to its fruition to its completion. Uh, Jesus isn't asking a lot from them if we look at it from a distance that simply to stay in Jerusalem, that doesn't seem like a tough, tough order, but re remember, and we'll touch on this at other parts during this message, is that during this time in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's still in upheaval. Even 40 days after his resurrection, th there's a lot going on, there's a lot politically that's happening, and, and the disciples were still being sought after. So in some ways, it is a tough order. How much, though, are we not like the disciples to not follow the orders that we're given? Whether it's from our bosses or from our parents, we try and usurp these orders. We think that we know better than, than, than those that are in charge above us. If, if you need an example of this, just look at your children. Like, we as, as adults are just grown-up or older kids. We may be potty trained. We, we may have, we, we may have a, a larger vocabulary, but, but we're just like our kids. We try and usurp the orders of our boss 
just like our kids don't want to follow our instructions at times. I ask my kids to, to clean their room or, or uh, do their homework, and, and I was terrible at homework. I never did my homework, but, but I, I thought I knew better. I thought that I didn't need to know these things. You know, we're, we act the same way, though. They don't, they don't, our, our children don't see the big picture of, of why these things are important, of keeping a clean room or, or doing their homework. Could the Holy Spirit descend wherever Jesus told him to? Absolutely, yes. The Holy Spirit could have, could have descended at anywhere, at any point, under Jesus' orders. But Jesus, Jesus had told him to descend in Jerusalem, and hence these orders for the disciples to stay in Jerusalem. The second thing we see is correction. Look, look at verse 6. He says, he says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Now, one of the things that I've learned by, by going to these pastoral meetings on, on Monday afternoons uh, when we're talking about these verses is to ask the, why, the, the W questions. Who, what, why, where, and when, and how. I don't know how that's part of the Ws. But, but, uh, but we're, we're told to ask these questions. So, so let's go through these. Why would the disciples ask a question like this? And who was asking? Now, we're not told who's asking here, but... But I don't think that they all asked in unison, like they're reading off a note card. I don't think that's how this went. And, and I think if we look later in the passage, we see who the leader is of this group of disciples and this 120. I think we can see Peter is the leader of this group. And, and I think that Peter's the one asking this question. He seems to be the one to always ask the questions. This fits into his his M.O., the, the, the way he operates. He's, he's always asking the question. We don't, we don't know that for sure, but, but to the bigger question, question of why, why would the disciples ask a question like this? When we look at the time that Jesus spent with his disciples, Jesus' longest recorded message in Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. In this, Jesus gave the disciples and the crowds a model of how to pray. Turn quickly to, to, to Matthew 6, 9 through 10, if you have your, your Bibles, and so you can see this. I, I, I really think this is important, and it, and it really speaks to, to what Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is, is teaching them to pray, and he says, Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you can see that the disciples were, were not asking something that was so crazy, so outlandish that they had never heard it before. This is probably a prayer or definitely a model of prayer that they had prayed many times. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And, and we're, we're told to model that same that same prayer. That the kingdom will come when God's will on earth is done here. This was done to some extent 
to completion, but not fully. It seems like, though, there's, there's multiple, there's multiple uh, thoughts on, on, on what was happening here with, with, between Jesus and the disciples. One thought uh, when I was reading, when I was doing my studying, was John Piper was saying that, that, that this wasn't a rebuke from Jesus, but, but simply that, that they had everything beforehand right, that, that they knew that, that God's kingdom was coming, they, they could see the timeline, and, and they knew their scriptures. That many things had already come to fruition, and, and now it seems as though Jesus' kingdom is going to be here on earth. And that it's not a, a firm rebuke, but, but a, a simple gesture of, hey, you have everything right, but your timing is wrong. An, another area of thought was... was that this is a rebuke. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Ray, Ray Pritchard calls this a divine put-down. He gives some positive and negatives about this. He's, the positives, he says, first, this comes from strong faith in who Jesus is and his sovereignty over matters like establishing his kingdom here on earth. Secondly, you can see, see the zeal for God's kingdom to be established. Considering the evil and, 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 the, and the horribleness that we see out of people just in our Chicagoland area, should we not be praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come, on a daily basis? Uh, some negatives that, that he points out, the first aspect is that the disciples were asking, are you going to establish your kingdom? In which they already knew the answer to. In Luke 22, 28 through 30, it says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in Jesus' coming kingdom, this will be the job of the disciples, to judge these 12, 12 tribes. The second negative aspect is it's none of their business. Uh, three things quickly about this uh, that are a warning for, for us even today. First, it's, this is carnal impatience. God is the one who is controlling the events of the universe. This is, this is his universe, and he will do with it what he pleases and on his own timetable. Second is improper curiosity. The time and date that Jesus is coming back is not for us to know. It's interesting, we were talking about this on Monday, that, that on, on September 23rd is another date in which people are, some people are saying that Jesus is coming back. And and working where I do, I get a lot of questions about different, different aspects of the Bible. And like I'm, a, I'm, I'm this walking questionnaire. And, and this is one of the biggest questions because these are the things that are in the news. So is this really when Jesus is coming back? And I always tell them that if, any, if anybody ever gives you a date of when Jesus is coming back and tells you the time and date, that is not the time and, time and date that it's going to happen. I can assure you of that because we don't know. 
The third negative that we see is spiritual indolence. The fact that people stand and look at the clouds rather than working in the fields that are ripe with harvest. In this, though, there is a, a warning, yet there's a good reminder of the positive aspects that Jesus will come back soon. And now what that means, we, we don't know. It's not for us to, to, to determine. But we know he's coming back, and we can find hope in that. The third thing that we see is Jesus provides order. Jesus, not, Jesus did not give the disciples an order to stay in Jerusalem for no reason, but to bring order into their lives in this, in this time of chaos and a time of calamity in which was following the disciples around. Remember, again, that, that Jerusalem was in upheaval at this time, and, and, and now the Jewish leaders were not just looking for Jesus, but looking for his disciples as well. Life must have had a bit of crazy to it. And in this, this order that Jesus has brought to their life allowed them to show that they trusted Jesus and his sovereignty even over the order of him stay, telling them to stay in Jerusalem. This again was to also prepare for the spirit to descend, which we'll see in chapter 2 in the coming weeks. Uh, the idea of... of of the disciples staying and Jesus bringing order to the disciples would not have just been men who walked with Jesus, but so that they would have power in the, in the teaching that they did in the way they retaught what Jesus was teaching. In the coming weeks, we'll also see how this holy movement will, will start not by a frantic action of trying to do things, but in staying put and waiting for the Holy Spirit. Our second point this morning, following a leader involves listening for wisdom. We should not just follow a, le a leader for no reason. We, we don't do that. Uh, we, we may follow in our actions uh, because our boss has told us something, but, but we don't follow with our hearts. We don't follow for no reason. And, we don't have blind faith in Jesus. Likewise, we don't have blind faith in our leaders. Listen for wisdom. Listening for wisdom, this person uh, that has been put in leadership over us is important. As we, let's look at this passage again, and, and starting in verse 15, we can begin to see who the leader of the early church was after Jesus. It says in verse 15, In those days Peter stood among the brothers, the company of a... Uh, the company of persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What must it have been like for those disciples after the, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection even, not, not knowing where this movement was going. You see, they, they weren't putting two and two together always of that, that Jesus is coming back and, and, and that his kingdom is going to come. They, they seem to be blind to some of these things. And, and you see Jesus having to reteach these things over and over and over again 
so that they would get it. As they walked back to Jerusalem, I'm sure some were wondering what's next, or they had some level of anxiety about what was about to happen. But look at what Peter's saying. He's going back and quoting Psalms of David that were, wrote, that were written centuries earlier. May his camp become desolate and, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Then he goes on and says, let another take his office. Both of these are, are quoted from the Psalms. Peter is bringing calm to an uncertain situation, not simply by his words, but by the power of the scriptures. Going back to the one aspect of our lives that we know is completely true all of the time. A standard, a, a, a bulwark, if you will, where we, can, where we can rest on these things and know that they're true. This is similar to what we see in a qualification for an elder. That that they're going back and reading the scriptures over and over again. They're not coming up with these fancy ideas on their own. Let us remember as followers that, that it's easy to lead when you're not in leadership. When you don't have to deal with or even recognize the gravity or responsibility of the moments in which the leaders do find themselves in. Here, though, Peter is leading the most important movement in all of creation, and yet keeps his message very simple. Jesus is gone, but this had to happen to fulfill scripture. The second thing we need to look for is prudence. You should look for prudence in your, in your leaders, and, and I don't have a really big vocabulary, so I had to look this up, and dictionary.com defines prudent as, a, as wise or judicious and practical affairs. In our passage, I think it gives a good understanding of this. We see Peter being the leader who is, who is seemingly running this uh, annual meeting. I hope they had a good caterer for this, for this meeting. Uh, so, so, they, so they're in this meeting, and, and Peter has the wisdom to calm the 120. Now, again, not by his own words, but, but by the words of Scripture. But what's he talking about? He keeps referring to Judas in this passage and, and what Judas has done to Jesus. What he's doing is he's beginning to lay out the framework or guidelines later in the passage of, of how to replace this 12th disciple. There are only 11 right now. And, and remember back, we, we, we know that the, that the 12 are going to jump are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And 11 and 12 don't add up perfectly. So, so he's beginning to lay out this framework in this passage. The pro, as I said, the problem is that of the 12th man. And he's not, some think that he was going outside of the bounds of, of, of what his authority was in this passage, usurping Jesus' authority. But, but we see Jesus even reassuring them in, in the previous passage in Luke that, that they're going to judge the twelve. It's easy to be distracted by the depth of the issues when things are seemingly against you, and they were at this time. Everything, humanly speaking, was against the disciples and the 120. 
So what you need is a leader that is able to handle the day-to-day -day issues when, something, when things are tough. And Peter lays out black and white what the, what the guidelines are going to be for this 12th disciple. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus spent in and out among us, beginning from the, from the baptism of John, uh, baptism of John until the day he went, uh, till the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men will become with us, a witness to his resurrection. So from the beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism to the very end that we saw in our passage this morning was the guidelines of, of a man that could fulfill this role as the 12th disciple. That he was there all during the, the teaching of, of Christ. Uh, this way, people weren't just bringing other, guys, other men up of, of men that may have been worthy of service, but had to see the entire ministry of Jesus. Peter has shown great prudence in the way he went about leading this meeting of the 120 in the upper room and this is a great example of what prudence look like, looks like. But we should also long out of our leaders for poise. So what happened here is that, so Jesus has been crucified, he's, he, he, he's been resurrected, and, and, and there's crazy all around. He's appeared to more than 500, and Jesus has been eating and teaching with them. Then after 40 days, he goes into heaven, and you know, we, we talked a minute ago about, you know, what, what must have the disciples have been thinking? The anxiety and, and not knowing that this has never happened before. People don't just go up into heaven. We only see that a couple of the times in Scripture where people are just taken up into heaven. So what must they have been thinking? Peter, again, provides poise for the disciples. But Peter's voice is the only one that you hear crying out from from this passage after Jesus is taken up. I think it's amazing when we look back at the life of Peter how, how much he was, uh, he, he had foot and mouth syndrome. He, he, was, he was able to, to put his foot in his mouth at, at, any, at any turn. And, and, and that's what one of the beauties about Peter and, and one of his biggest downfalls. And, and, and Peter tells Jesus before at the Last Supper that, that he's not going to deny him. There's no way. And yet he does three times. But you can see how Jesus restored him in John 21. I want you to listen for a second. John 21, starting in verse 15, says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. 
Truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was... This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You can see the the turn of events from from Peter as one that puts his foot in his mouth constantly to Peter here in Acts and, and here in this passage in John. You can see that turn in the leadership that he's going to start providing to the early church. Poison leaders is so vitally important to followers. If leaders are frantic, your followers will be also. I really like war movies, and one of, the, one of, the, one of my favorite docudramas is Band of Brothers. And this, this, this docudrama follows the, the, the comings and goings of, of uh, during World War II of, of an airborne division, Easy Company. And and they saw some of the most fierce of battles in, in World War II in Europe. They were there on D-Day, and, and they dropped in, and, and their leader, Richard Winters, um, he, he was constantly running and leading his, his troops toward the enemy, toward machine gun fire. He was always poised, never frantic. Winters was only wounded one time during their entire campaign in World War II. He was shot in the leg uh, through his calf on, on the very first day when they dropped in to, uh, to, to France. Winters went on and, and, and was promoted to a, to a major by the end of the war, and, and, and he, he had received uh, more than 25 medals and ribbons for, for his acts of valor, for the for his leadership that he provided to, to his troops during this time. Under his leadership, more than 149 other medals were given to those under his command. Now, as he was promoted, he, he got further and further away from the battle lines. And, and, and what, what happened was they, they would promote somebody within the ranks to, to lead these, these men. And, and what happened was nobody was able to fulfill fulfill this until the very end of the, the show that, that was on HBO. And, and so the leaders would, would become frantic. They, were, they fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and, and, and uh, the Germans would be shelling them during the, during the day and night, and, and, and the leaders would seemingly disappear. They wouldn't be able to even find their leadership on the front line. By the end of the by the end of their time in, in Germany, though, they, they found a leader that, again, was poised in battle, not worrying about his own skin, but worrying about the job at hand. I think that we see Peter as doing these same things, that he's not worried by the end of his, by, by this time, he's not worried about his own skin anymore. He's totally sold out for Jesus. The last thing I want to look at here is is how advocates can fall short in the advantage of a witness. And I I think this is really at the heart of 
of all of the book of Acts. Uh, one commentator said that if there were one, one, one passage in, in all of Acts to explain the entire book, it would be verse 8. I first want to start out by, by saying being an advocate, because I'm going to make an argument against being an advocate, but being an advocate is a good thing. We all need to be an advocate. So when I, when I think of being an advocate, the first thing I think of is, is going to the emergency room or taking my kids to the emergency room. And the nurse will come in and take some vital signs and, and then this patient advocate, I think it's more of a hospital advocate, will come and, and let you know what your rights are as a patient and those types of things. An advocate is one who, who pleads on behalf of another. You see, I can make a case I can make a case and I can marshal arguments to persuade a few people by simply book knowledge. Some people will be, will be persuaded that way. I can generally deduce my convictions and, and sharing my faith of these logical conv convictions uh, and inferences to persuade others. This is, this is apologetics 101. This is, this is what we do as Christians. And this is, this is really how, what we think it means to be a witness. That we, that we only share the knowledge that we have here rather than here. You can see this is how we study the scriptures and, and, and this will make its way into the way we share the gospel. When we look at the book of Acts, we can see that, that even in the book of Acts, the apostles do this. Paul was one of the best at this. He went in the Areopagus, the, where, where, where the thinkers of the day were, and he argued with them. Not, not in a negative way, but, but in a good way, where, where they had conversation back and forth about who Jesus was. The second thing that you see is that an advocate pleads regardless of the truth. At some level, a, an, an advocate is, is just doing their job. That, that they're only, uh, when we think back to, to, to an advocate being in the hospital, patient advocate, that they may not believe everything that they're telling you. They may think that there's better rules or regulations that should be there to protect you, but they're simply doing their job. In the same way, at times, we come across someone who does not feel they believe everything about the gospel, and they may share some semblance of the gospel. Thomas Jefferson said that, that he was a Christian and, and, and yet made his own Bible. He went and cut out all the miracles of Jesus. He, he cut out those things that were, that, that were seemingly too good to be true about who Jesus said he was. Again, I would say that being an advocate is a good thing. We need to be advocates at some level. We should be able to, to, to make arguments for Jesus. Have the ability to tell an unbelieving world who Jesus is. And that Jesus is the only way to find forgiveness for your sins. But where's the power in simply words? I think when we look at the sister passage to, to our passages this morning in, in Luke 24, 49, 
we, we get a clearer picture of, of, of the flavor in which in what Jesus is talking about here. He says in Luke 24, 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, I believe this, this clothing with power is, is, is different from, from the normal sanctifying work that, that Jesus is doing inside of all Christians. In the Old Testament, you can find many instances of this. You can write these down if you want. Gideon in Judges 6.14, Amasai in 1 Chronicles 12.18, and Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24.20. These are... These are instances where there's this extraordinary clothing, this extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the most, impo- maybe the most impressive of these is the tongues of fire descending on the, ho- on, on the disciples and, and 3,000 being added to their number as they preached. That's extraordinary power. I, I think this can happen today without a, without a shadow of a doubt. But these are extraordinary instances in which this happens. They were able to speak in, in different language, which, languages which they had no idea how to speak. And how the disciples are not just advocates here, but being witnesses of the Spirit of Jesus. Witnesses rely on a couple of things. Uh, first, a personal encounter. So in order to be a witness, you have to have to have had your life changed by Jesus. Now, this may mean that you have a real personal encounter with the incarnate Jesus Christ, which I believe can happen. People have dreams in which Jesus is telling them to come, come to him. Go find this Christian in this place. But more often than not, it's, it's, it's us as Christians having an encounter with the Holy Spirit, with the words that Jesus has taught. One of the greatest examples of this is, is in Acts 9, and I don't mean to go to jump ahead in our passages here, but in Acts 9, we, we see Paul having a real experience with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. One could not help but tell the good news of Jesus regardless of the consequences to himself once you have these encounters. We also see in see the 11 and then the 12th disciple that was named that fall into the same category. They had a personal encounter with Jesus in his earthly ministry. They all scattered during, during the crucifixion except for John, but now they've been restored and, and, and now they're witnesses of not just the death, not just the resurrection, but also the ascension of Jesus. The second thing we see is is a personal is personal experience. A witness is one who first has a personal encounter with Jesus, but also has the experience to go with it. What I mean by this is that that they call themselves Christians. They must have had an encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that you have to have a Damascus Road uh, life changing experience like Paul did. But each experience is going to be different. But nonetheless, you had to have you have to have your life changed. Does this 
But, but those who have a daily encounter with, with Jesus in the scriptures have experience with him. When we have this experience, along with life experiences, we cannot keep these things to ourselves. It wells up within us. It, it comes up in conversations. It, our hearts long for those that we're in community with. John Piper had this to say about a witness. He said, a witness is a person that has been so touched, so powerfully and deeply moved by the reality that Jesus is sweeping their sins away and inhabiting their hearts so that there's absolutely no single doubt anymore that there's light outside the window or there's a pulpit here in front of me. And you speak with the kind of confidence of one who knows, who has tasted, and who has seen. Can you say that about yourself? That you're so confident in who Jesus is that, that you see the light outside the window, that you can feel the chair that you're sitting on. Can you say that about Indian Creek? Can we say that about Village Bible Church? That we are so moved that we know this to its fruition. One person, one person uh, had this to write about a conversation they were having, having with a parishioner about a witness. One person asked, how can, how can I be a witness when I, feel, uh, when I don't feel gifted at marshalling arguments or, or have five reasons why the Bible is infallible? I don't know the major, let alone the, the finer points of theology. I can assure you today that, that while theologians have their place, while, while Bible teachers and, and pastors have their place, more people will be touched by the gospel, not by them, but by witnesses in the world by the people that sit on the other side of this pulpit. How can this be? We, we, look, we look at Bible teachers. That, uh, I admire Tim uh, Badal so much of, of the knowledge that he has. He's, so, he's one of the smartest people I know, but, but, he says, but, but Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Witnesses have a depth to their, to their convictions, a height to their joy, a comprehensiveness to their union with Christ, so that when they open their mouth, it will be like Stephen in Acts 7. Your witness will be irresistible because you have seen and you will be speaking from what you know firsthand. That the power of the Holy Spirit will be, will, will be in the words that you're saying. Not for your glory, but for his. You don't have to speak above someone's intelligence level for them to understand or, or for you to convince them of, of what you're saying. When we simply tell others how Jesus has changed our lives and, and then, then turn around and, and they're able to see that, in the way that you live. That's where the power comes from. So I challenge you this morning to be a witness of Jesus, not just advocates. Being an advocate is great. You, you, you need to know these things. You need to study your scripture, and you, and, and you should be able to marshal arguments. But if it stops there, there's no power. The power is in being a witness for Jesus. Peter, before his death, before Jesus' death and resurrection, was an advocate. 
and afterwards wasn't worried about his own skin. He was crucified, but didn't feel worthy of being crucified in the same way, and yet was asked to be crucified upside down. Can we say that of ourselves today, that we don't feel worthy of dying in the same ways that Jesus did? And I'm not saying crucifixion, because that's not really happening in our world in which we live here in the Western culture today. But can we say that we're not worthy of these same things of Christ? That we're witnesses of Jesus and what he's done for us, the way he's changed our lives. Witnesses in a world that so desperately needs us.